Okay, we are in the book of 1 Peter. I'm going to read the first 12 verses from the New American Standard. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, these are indeed things in which angels long to look. Uh, Jesus did suffer. He did die. And he did that for the glory set before him, the joy set before him, Father. Now you've glorified him. Father, help us as we look at your word and consider the great and the precious promises therein to enjoy Jesus, Father, to look with hope and longing as we talked about in worship this morning, looking forward to Jesus who wants to show us his glory. Thank you for the preaching of the word. May our ears be open and ready to hear by your power through Tom's words. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I'm excited to be starting our study of the book of 1 Peter. It is a marvelous epistle. I, I can't imagine anyone better suited than Peter the Apostle to deliver a letter about the believer's call to persevere joyfully in the face of suffering and persecution. And that is indeed what this letter is about. I have been all over the map with the title for the series, and this is what I ended up with. And I did it in a, in a very Bob Deffenbaugh sort of way in the shower this morning. It's when that finally gelled. Living hope in the refiner's fire. Um, you'll see the, both of those ideas throughout the epistle. During the years of his earthly ministry, Jesus uh, rebuked Peter more often and more, more harshly than he did any of the other ten true disciples. 
And after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Peter suffered the most stinging rebuke recorded in the Bible from one apostle given to another. Now it was in Galatians 2, which we saw during that study. Peter was impulsive. He was passionate. He was often not terribly wise. And of course, he is the disciple whose betrayal of Jesus on the night of Jesus' arrest is recorded by all four gospel writers for the whole world to remember from that point forward. Peter knew firsthand what it meant to waver in faithfulness in the face of persecution and even in the face of disapproval from men. But he was nevertheless a man set apart by God to be powerfully used for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. He is the disciple who on the day of Pentecost boldly and fearlessly indicted the Jewish religious leaders to their faces for putting to death the Lord of glory at the hands of godless men. The Holy Spirit used that message to add 3,000 souls to the kingdom in a single day. Peter and John were the first two disciples to be arrested for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was just the beginning of all that Peter suffered for the Lord's sake and for the gospel's sake. This man knew firsthand the reality of persecution and suffering for the cause of Christ. He knew what it meant to persevere in that glorious cause, and he was ultimately put to death for that perseverance, just as Jesus had told him he would be. Peter was a man like many of us, a man painfully aware of his own limitations and failings. But far more importantly, Peter was a simple fisherman whose life had been utterly transformed through simple faith in the Lord of glory who called him out of darkness into his marvelous light. You and I need to pay very careful attention to the words given to us by God through this profoundly humbled fisher of men. Peter will tell us in the five chapters of this short but but very powerful letter what you and I should expect life as a Christ follower to be like and how to live it with power, with purpose, and even with inexpressible joy. I can think of no one better suited to write this epistle and I can think of no book of the Bible more relevant to the times in which we live. This letter is about a hope that thrives in the midst of the refiner's furnace, a furnace that burns, that hurts. It's not the furnace of Nebuchadnezzar that God kept from even singeing a single hair of the three Hebrew youths, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Ours is a furnace that often singes badly, a fiery ordeal that hurts. And we need to know how our faith can thrive in the midst of that furnace. Peter gives us that answer. In the first 12 verses of this letter, Peter presents the basis, the defining reality 
behind the calling that he will lay out throughout the rest of this epistle. A calling to persevere and to rejoice in the midst of suffering. This defining reality that utterly changes the way we think and the way we live is the reality of our living hope. And the foundation of that living hope is our saving God. As I see it, there are two key themes that Peter develops in these 12 verses to explain this living hope on which our whole assignment as Christians depends. And while we're on the subject of key themes, I'm going to ask each of you to reach into your pockets and purses and take out the keys that you carry around and set them in the, set them right beside you in the seat. Don't worry about making a little noise. That's perfectly fine. I promise we're not going to pass the plates and take up your keys. The first thing that Peter explains about our living hope is the foundation of that hope. What it is that makes our hope vibrantly alive. What makes it life transforming right now. And actually it's not what, it's who. (laughs) The second thing that Peter will tell us about this hope is the impact of this hope. What our hope actually changes about the way we live. What effect does our living hope have on us? Now, Peter likely wrote this letter just before or at the very beginning of the harsh systematic persecution instituted against Christians by the Roman Emperor Nero, persecutions that began around A.D. 64. I lean toward the likelihood that those persecutions had already begun. And one of the reasons I do is a very interesting reference in the next to last verse of this whole epistle. A reference to she who is in Babylon. I consider that to be an intentionally cryptic reference to the church in the city of Rome, which suffered soonest and most grievously under Nero's persecutions. In any case, there's absolutely no doubt that the believers to whom Peter wrote this epistle initially were about to find themselves subjected not only to religious persecution at the hands of Jewish leaders and, and religious pagans, but they were about to find themselves subjected to government sponsored persecution at the hands of very powerful Roman authorities. Persecution that persisted in some form all the way until the reign of Constantine in the 4th century A.D. In verses 1 and 2, Peter says two things about those to whom he is writing, his audience. First, he says they reside as aliens scattered throughout the provinces of Asia Minor in what is now Turkey. The churches in that region included both Jews and Gentiles, but as some of the specific content of this letter suggests, they would have been mostly Gentiles. Peter's reference to aliens refers to their spiritual citizenship. He's pointing out that these believers, just like the believers in all ages, are in the world, but not of the world. 
He'll say later in chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So the first thing that Peter says about his audience is they're aliens. And the second thing that he says about them is is what made them aliens. And here, in the first two verses, even while he's still in the introduction to this letter, Paul begins to talk about the foundation of our hope. And that foundation upon which our living hope is built is our confidence in the God who saves to the uttermost. Peter identifies his readers as those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. If you are a child of God through faith in Christ alone, that is God's doing. God chose in eternity past to save you, and on the basis of that choosing, He brought you to faith in Christ. Now, I know that not everyone here agrees with me on the doctrine of sovereign election, and that's fine. There are many Christians whom I love, greatly respect, and who know the Scriptures very well, who understand the foreknowledge of God essentially like this. They believe that in eternity past, God who sees all and is not limited by time looked forward through history and He foresaw which people would respond to the Gospel with faith through the exercise of their own free will. Then on the basis of that knowledge beforehand, God intervenes now to help each of those people come to to faith in Jesus Christ in His perfect timing. They believe and affirm that our salvation is God's work, not ours. We need to to all be clear on that. We we are not disagreeing with those who, who are on either side of the sovereign election. We are not disagreeing about whose work our salvation is. But some believe it is the exercise of the person's free will, his own choice to believe in Christ, that that determines whether or not God's, God's work of salvation is applied to him. Now, I believe God's foreknowledge of us, upon which Peter says God's choosing for salvation is based, speaks of God's intimate, personal knowledge of us from eternity past. And I believe this is in keeping with how Peter uses that same word, foreknow, in verse 20 of this same chapter, when he says Jesus Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last days for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God. I believe God chose us and He wrote our names in the Lamb's book of life before the world existed. You'll see that in Revelation 13.8 and 17.8. And I believe that He knew those who would be His intimately before we even existed. But whatever you believe about the meaning of the word foreknowledge or about the role of God's sovereign choosing in our salvation, I urge you not to miss the fact that Peter's whole argument here absolutely depends on the rock-solid certainty that our eternal salvation is settled because it is the work of God and not the work of men. The reason that we have a hope that is dynamically alive, that radically transforms the way we live now, is because we have a God who saves to the uttermost. 
We know that He's going to finish what He started in eternity past. In verse 2, we see that all three persons of the Trinity were involved in God's act of choosing. And that God's choice is powerfully effective. It wasn't merely a choice to expose us to the gospel. It wasn't just God giving us the opportunity to be saved, as I see it. It was God's predetermined intention to save to the uttermost those whom He had chosen. To make us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Peter says we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Listen to this. We were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying, that means the holiness imparting work of the Holy Spirit, that we may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled by His blood. That's the whole trinity. The Father chooses, the Son atones, and the Spirit sanctifies. Or to tie those three things together the way Peter does in this verse, the Father chooses, and that choosing is then manifested by the justifying application of Jesus' blood, His atoning blood to us, and by the sanctifying work of the Spirit that conforms us to Christ indeed. Now it's significant that that Peter speaks here of our obedience to Christ before he speaks of the sprinkling of Christ's atoning blood on us. He is certainly not saying that it's by our works that we are made righteous in the eyes of God. Peter made it crystal clear in Acts 15, right in front of all the leaders of the Jerusalem church, that he was on the very same page as the Apostle Paul with regard to how both Jews and Gentiles become righteous in the eyes of God, or declared righteous. And he made it clear in Acts 15 that that is by faith, not by works of the law. I believe Peter mentions our obedience to Christ before he mentions our justification by Christ's blood in order to make very clear the extent of God's choosing. The reason he's taking pains to be clear about how far God's choosing extends is because everything that he's going to declare in the next several verses about the rock-solid certainty of our salvation and inheritance depends on the fact that God's choosing applies his entire work of salvation to those who have been chosen. God chose us not only to cover us with the life-giving blood of Christ, but to make us obedient to Christ here and now and to present us on the last day in His presence, holy unto Him. That's the theme of Paul's letter to to the Romans. The gospel is about the righteousness of God given to men, not not only judicially, but in practice and ultimately in full and in glory. So in the first two verses, Peter identifies himself as the writer. He identifies his audience as aliens in the world who are chosen by God. And then he launches in verse 3 into an amazing statement that goes all the way through verse 12. That whole section of the first chapter is about the living hope that we have in Christ. Now, 
I'm going to tie these outline points together in a moment. He begins with these words, blessed, in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The words of blessing at the beginning of that verse that are directed toward God leave no doubt about who gets the credit, all the credit, for the hope that belongs to us as God's redeemed. Our living hope is rooted in the very character of our saving God. When we behold what God has revealed to us about our marvelous salvation, we realize that God saves to the, utter, to the uttermost. And that knowledge, that our God saves to the uttermost, that is the foundation of our hope. Now Peter presents three lines of evidence in this passage that when God saves, He saves to the uttermost. We already saw His first line of evidence in the first two verses. God chose to save us. Now in verses 3-5, through five, He gives us the second line of evidence, and that is that, that God secures those whom He has chosen. He secures our inheritance. He gives us something we cannot lose. There are four things that God has done that make our eternal inheritance an absolute certainty for every believer. First, God is the one who caused us to be born again. This declaration follows immediately from Peter's declaration that God chose us. And he's making it very clear that God is the one who he is the one and only cause of our new birth into a living hope. I thank my God all the time <laughs> that I had no more to do with my second birth than I did with my first birth. And the reason that makes me thankful is because if I did have anything to do with it, it there would be nothing certain about it. But because God caused it, I have no doubt that it's a done deal. Because God finishes what God starts. Our inheritance is certain because God caused us to be born again. And our inheritance is certain because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter says God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our own resurrection, which will which will usher us into the fullness of our inheritance, is a sure thing because of Christ's resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and we are the latter fruits. His resurrection is proof that our faith is placed in the one who finishes what he starts. Our inheritance is certain because God caused us to be born again. It is certain because God raised Christ from the dead. And it is certain because God keeps our inheritance for us. Verse 4 presents the object of our hope. What it is for which we are eagerly waiting. We talked about that some this morning at the worship. The object of our hope is our inheritance. God gave us new birth in order to qualify us to share in the inheritance that belongs to His own beloved Son. He made us sons 
in order to make us heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Romans 8.17 See, we are heirs of God together with the Son of God. It's His inheritance that God gives us. And that inheritance is God. Look at what Peter says here about our inheritance. He says it is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. God keeps our inheritance for us. Do you think Peter could have been any clearer about this? He says our inheritance is imperishable. That means it cannot die. It is undefiled, meaning it cannot be corrupted or changed. It will not fade away, meaning that it remains in full force until the day we lay hold of it. And it is reserved in heaven for you by God, meaning your inheritance has your name on it. (laughs) And it was God who put your name on it. It's yours. And nothing in all of God's creation can change that if you belong to Jesus Christ through faith. Not only is our inheritance certain because God keeps it for us, it's certain because God keeps us for it. In verse 5, Peter says, we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, the salvation he's talking about that's going to be revealed in the last time, that's the finishing out of God's work of salvation. In the last day, when we stand before Him in redeemed, imperishable bodies with our sin having been completely put away from us forever, made fit to dwell in the very presence of God. There are entire denominations of Christianity that teach that we can walk away from faith in Jesus Christ and in doing so we can lose the salvation that we once had. Beloved, if that's true, this verse is a lie. And that means it's not true. Peter is a plain-spoken fisherman. He doesn't beat around the bush. He says what he means to say. And God used that man to declare with no confusion that He, God, keeps those whom He saves. And He does so through the instrumentality of simple faith. The God who brought you to faith is the God who keeps you in that faith by His limitless power. You may struggle with doubt at times, perhaps even profound doubt. Peter did. Peter wavered in his faith in Jesus even to the point of denying any association with Jesus three times with a curse the night Jesus was arrested. And some might say, yeah, but that was before he got the Holy Spirit. A real Christian would never do anything like that. Well, if that's your analysis, go read Galatians 2 again. Long after he had received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Peter still struggled against the temptation to fear men more than he feared compromising the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's what Paul accused him of doing. But Peter never abandoned the fight and he never abandoned the faith. And I think the one thing that Peter did more quickly than sin than sinning <laughs> 
is repenting when he was convicted of sin. I believe that God had the gospel writers and the apostle Paul lay out Peter's struggles and failures before us with brutal honesty precisely because he knew that you and I would face those same struggles. But God kept Peter in the faith and he will keep you in faith. And Jesus said, even if you have faith as minuscule as a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. See, the issue is not the magnitude or the perfect consistency of your faith. The issue is the source and object of your faith, and they are one and the same. If God gave you faith, He will keep you in faith until He brings you into His very presence, spotless and blameless and beyond reproach. You are protected by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time, and that protection is in the form of your faith. Have you reckoned with that amazing promise? All right, it's time to hold up those keys that I ask you to pull out of your purses and pockets. Shake them, make some joyful noise. Okay, that's good. What are those keys for? You know what they're for? They are for they are for all manner of things in your life that are only secure to the extent that you can make them secure. And that, my friends, is not very secure. How many of you during your lives have had something that was protected by one of these keys broken into or stolen? Maybe it was a window that was broken out of your car so that someone could rip the stereo out of your dash and the speakers out of your doors. That's happened to me twice with locked cars. Maybe someone broke a window and took a pry bar to the lock of one of the doors of your house so they could come in and steal your stuff. All those keys that you carry around with you only serve to make it a little harder for someone to take things from you. But beloved, if you believe in Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior, there is one thing in your life for which you will never, ever need a lock or a key or a password or two-factor authentication or a biometric scan. The next time you pull out your ring of keys to get yourself into your house, remember this. When God saved you, it was all His doing, and God doesn't do things halfway. He brought you to faith. He promises to keep you in that faith until you stand in His presence. He sealed you. He secured you for Himself with His indwelling Spirit when you heard the message of the Gospel and believed it. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And that Holy Spirit, that indwelling of the Spirit is His down payment to you of all the rest of His inheritance. And He's not going to take it back from you. He's not going to take Him back from you. I've said this before, but you know why your down payment is a person? Because the rest of your inheritance is a person. God Himself. Your resurrection day, the day that you will step into the fullness of your inheritance, is as certain as the already accomplished resurrection of your Savior. 
Your salvation from beginning to end is as unshakable as your God. Nothing could be more secure. And because your inheritance comes from the God who saves to the uttermost, your hope, your hope is alive. It is a hope that changes the way you live. In verses 10 through 12, Peter presents one final line of evidence that God saves us to the uttermost. One, one more marvelous truth that makes our hope revolutionary and life-changing. And that is that God's plan for our salvation has been in the works from eternity past. And we know that because the prophets of old told us that it was. Peter says that those Old Testament prophets foretold both the first and second coming of Jesus. And when they did, they prophesied of the grace that would come to you. They searched and inquired carefully, intently, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He, the Holy Spirit, predicted both the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. What a marvelous verse. 700 years before Jesus came from heaven to earth and took on humanity, lived a perfect sinless life, and suffered and died as our substitute and was raised from the dead. 700 years before that happened, Isaiah the prophet spoke with great clarity. He prophesied that this one whom God calls my servant would be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. But first, he would be despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He who was sinless would suffer and die as the perfect guilt offering. He would pay the price of our sins and he would provide the only offering that ever satisfied God's hatred of our sin. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb and then he would be raised from the dead. And then, because he poured out himself to death to bear the sins of many, this resurrected servant of God would enter into the exaltation that God had promised to him. That's the gospel 700 years before Jesus came. A thousand years before Jesus came, King David predicted both his crucifixion, Psalm 22, and his resurrection, Psalm 16. And according to what Peter says right here, God revealed to Isaiah and David and Daniel and all of the uh, many other Old Testament prophets who spoke of Christ that they were not serving themselves. That they would not see the fulfillment of these things in their own day. But they were serving us. They didn't get to know with clarity to what person or time their prophecies applied. But we do know. Both men and angels have longed over the centuries to get a clearer understanding of all the precious and magnificent promises that God decreed throughout the ages concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. We do know that person. And we do know the time of His first coming and of His atoning death and glorious resurrection because, because it happened just the way the prophets said that it would. 
when we hear the testimony of Jesus himself and of, of his apostles that he came that first time to save us from our sins, to give us his own righteousness, and to make us fit to dwell with him forever, we know that the hope we have of the finishing out of that amazing salvation is a hope well-founded. Because we know what the prophets didn't get to clearly know. God told mankind what Jesus would do to save us. And He did. He did it. So when He tells us that He's coming back to take us into His presence forever, we know He's going to do that too. Your hope is not based on some kind of... uh, two-minute warning plan that God came up with late as a reaction to the persistent sin of mankind. Your hope is founded on the eternal decree of God revealed through dozens of prophets over 1,500 years. Prophets who would have loved to know clearly what God has made clearly known to you. Here's where we come to the living part of our living hope the impact of our hope. Because our hope is founded on the God who saves to the uttermost, it is a hope that radically changes the way we live now. In verses 6-9, through Peter lays out two revolutionary ways that this unshakable hope changes us. And these two are just the beginning. The whole rest of this letter is about how our living hope transforms us dramatically how it changes the way we live. The two that he gives us in this passage, first, the trials that produce despair in us and in others produce rejoicing, produce rejoicing in us. Many professing Christians reject, at least in practice, the notion that it's even possible to rejoice in suffering. They're okay with the idea that we can rejoice once suffering is in the rearview mirror, right? Praise God for getting me past that. But if you tell them that we have a compelling cause to rejoice in the midst of suffering, they look at you like you're nuts. And if some professing Christians do that, you know the world does it big time. But joy in the midst of suffering is a central theme throughout this letter. Not some half-hearted praise the Lord every now and then, but exceedingly great joy. In chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. He doesn't say rejoice in spite of suffering. He says to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also with the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. And then he says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's critically important for us to, stand, to understand how our marvelous hope in Christ plays into all of this rejoicing stuff. 
Peter's saying we rejoice when we share in the sufferings of Christ now because we know that we will share in the glory of Christ later. Peter describes our great rejoicing, even in the midst of the various trials of this life, as the proof of our faith. And the word proof in verse 7 refers to a refining trial or test through which, listen to this, through which something whose value was not previously exposed or revealed finally becomes fully displayed for everybody to behold. The analogy that Peter presents here is the refining of gold. But then he says the real refining that he's talking about that takes place in a child of God through trials unveils something far more precious than gold. Something imperishable. And that's something that God is purifying in us is our faith. But our faith is about the worthiness of its object. So once the refining is completed, our faith results, our proven faith results in praise and glory and honor. Not for us, but for Him. Finally, the second miraculous change that our living hope produces in us is that we love, trust, and rejoice in someone we can't even see. In John 20, Thomas refused to believe that Jesus had been raised until he could see Him with his own eyes and touch the wounds in His hands and His side. Jesus condescended to give him that opportunity, but then Jesus said to Thomas, Because you have seen Me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Here in First Peter verses, chapter one, verses eight and nine, Peter says, "Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." Now this is all craziness to unbelievers. Why would anyone rejoice in suffering? And how could anyone possibly love and trust and be overwhelmed with joy over someone he can't even see? Of course, the answer is that God has given us, His children, redeemed eyes that see true things far more clearly than they see the things of this earth. Peter is not presenting these radical changes as a litmus test to smoke out unbelievers who are mixed in with the real saints. He says he's writing to those who are the chosen of God. And beloved, he is telling us how God designed the Christian life to work. If you read the rest of this letter, it's very clear that some in Peter's audience of chosen saints were struggling mightily. Struggling about having to submit to a pagan government. Struggling about having to submit to unjust earthly masters and disobedient husbands. Struggling to put away malice and slander and hypocrisy and envy. And struggling mightily against the enticement to abandon Christ in order to put an end to persecution and mockery. 
Peter knew the struggles of these dear saints just as surely as he knew his own struggles. Everything he says in this passage and in this whole letter is to encourage saints like us. Suffering, struggling saints who are going to suffer more if the Lord tarries. He's saying the same thing to you and me today that he was saying to the Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor in his day. You have a living hope that is as sure as the God who gave it to you. So rejoice! Rejoice with exceedingly great joy today, right in the midst of the refiner's fire. Not because it doesn't hurt. <laughs> but because Christ's glory is your destiny. And there is nothing and no one that can take that away from you. Dear Father, thank You for this, uh, this powerful introduction from Peter and for this proclamation about the, the living hope that You have made ours. May we not lose sight of that hope. May we, may we constantly rest on the sure and firm foundation of our saving God. Father, may that be, may that be the, the motivation, the clarity, the confidence that propels us to be useful to You in this world with hearts full of joy. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.